And you're listening to 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's hot out there. It's humid out there. It's going to be yucky, to say the least. No matter where you go, though, cool conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. There was Jaws, Bruce the Shark, Sharknado, the Discovery Channel Shark Week, news reports. All of them designed to make us fear shark attack. Should we be afraid? Well, to help us understand our fear and whether it's realistic, I'm pleased to welcome here our expert on all things mental health, Dr. John Huber. Dr. Huber is an excellent explainer of the things which confront us. Good morning, Dr. Huber. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm fine, and welcome back. Certainly. Thank you. There haven't been a whole lot of movies that had the impact that Jaws had, have there. <laughs> no, there have not been. And, you know, you have to remember that, that Spielberg is a master marketer. And that's something that really plays into this whole whole situation, our fear of going out into the ocean. Well, I remember seeing Jaws. And the first time <laughs> Bruce, Bruce, bless his heart, the name that was given the shark, ate somebody for dinner, I jumped out of my seat. <laughs> well, that's true. You, you know, and, and sharks... When they bite into somebody, what they're looking for is about three or four inches of thick, sweet, high-calorie fat. And we don't tend to do that. I mean, we, you know, even if we're obese, we still don't have that huge, all the way around our body, thickness and fatness that you have from, say, a sea lion. So they don't like to kill us when they do bite us. And, in fact, a lot more people get bit and spit out than bit and killed. Yeah. Interesting. Um, because from the newscast anyway, they seem to go for legs and arms more than anything else. That's right. That's right. And, you know, that's, that's usually when we're, where we're not thick and fat. We usually have a lot of muscle in our legs and arms. And you may lose a leg, but the odds of getting bitten by a shark, um, and dying somewhere between 1 in 4 million to 1 in 12 million. And it's very rare. It's, it's not quite as rare as the lottery, but uh, it, is, it is significantly rare. While going to the beach and swimming in the ocean, your odds of drowning are about 1 in 140. But why are we so scared of sharks and, and not quite so scared of going swimming? Well, we have this, this odd belief that it's better to die of some situation that isn't bloody and gory. So, for example, uh, going to the extremes, most people are not afraid of going to sleep at night and not waking up. You know, we don't fear going to sleep and dying in our sleep, but we, get, we fear being eaten by a shark, being eaten by a bear, those types of things. We fear? So fear involved. We fear pain. Yes, yes, we fear pain. And uh, the, the next thing that is going on is just the way we think and how we solve problems. Now, a, a, an example would be 
a program on your computer to protect you from viruses. They use algorithms, but they don't always have every single algorithm. So they use a thing called heuristics where if it kind of looks like a duck and it kind of swims like a duck, the program says, nope, you're a duck, and it blocks it. And there's different models of, of heuristics to use. And we use the same thing in our brain, the same mechanism, because we don't always have the, the specific formula to figure a problem out. So we, we work in generalities. And that heuristics that we use is called the availability heuristics. And the way Steven Spielberg marketed and now Shark Week markets their shark shows, what happens is that's one of the things that's stuck in the front of our mind because we fear that gory death. So that's one of the forefront thought processes that we have. So it's available for us. And the minute you think about going to the beach, you don't think about, floating on a floaty and falling off and, and, and drowning, you think about the gore, the available storyline that you have from watching Jaws, and there's the response we get. And uh, it's, pre it's pretty ingenious the way Steven Spielberg marketed that. I mean, it was, it, was, it was genius, and it helped that movie go a lot farther than it probably would have if, if we weren't afraid of the gore and the violence associated with that death. And then there were all those sequels, but that's another discussion. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. Then there's the whole Sharknado phenomena. It took shark and our fear of sharks to an extreme. Made us laugh, didn't it? Well, yeah, it, it, it did. It poked fun of it, but it doesn't help that fear of getting in the ocean. And it doesn't help the fear of tornadoes. Uh, in fact, I have a, a friend of mine who, who was killed in one of those Sharknado movies, and my kids are giving her a hard time about it. And so, <laughs> Goodness. Um, children watch Shark Week on the Discovery yeah. Channel. Children watch reruns of the Sharknado movies. Children watch Jaws. They get scared. What do we do as adults, as parents, as caring individuals to help them with that fear? <laughs> well, you know, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like watching the news when they have a school shooting. Um, what do we do with our kids in that situation? You know, and, and that's a scary thing. But statistically, you're actually more likely to be bitten by a shark twice and killed than being uh, killed in, in some kind of mass shooting school, business, whatever. So it is pretty rare that we would do that. But there are kids that are afraid to get up and go to, go to school the next day after this stuff happens. And one of the ways we do that is to reassure individuals that, you know, sharks really don't, want to eat humans. They don't really tend to like human flesh. They spit it out. Um, what they see, for example, is they, they see a surfboard and the, the arms and legs of that human paddling, and it has the same profile as a, as a seal swimming across the top of the water. So they go up and they take a bite, and uh, unfortunately, a large shark is just so massive that it tends to be lethal when they 
ketamine vein or something. It's not that they they enjoy you and they spit the people out. The people aren't gone because they've been devoured. Um, they chase you and they don't like you and they spit you out. Mm-hmm. Now that's not very reassuring to some kid learning how to surf, but. Uh, if you get on a helicopter and you fly down the coast at any given time, you can see the sharks swimming between swimmers and surfers and divers, and the sharks really aren't interested in us. That still is a scary thought, though. But the reality of it is they really don't want to eat us. But then we have the lifeguards whistles, everybody out of the water now! Are they being realistic? Um... You know, they're trained to do that. If a, if a shark starts, you know, with a scent out of the water and things like that, uh, that often means that they may be after some fish that are schooling and things like that, and they get into a feeding frenzy. That's just safer to get you out of the water. And besides, the guards don't want to have to go jump in the water and get somebody who has a foot or a wrist or hand or something that gets cut when a, when a shark gets caught in their mouth. So there, there's a lot of things going on in that situation. Uh, the cities train them if the, if the lifeguard sees the shark to tell everybody to come in. Again, that doesn't help that availability heuristics and our fear. But, uh, you know, I, I lived in Miami and we spent a lot of time on the beach. And the thing that scared us more than anything else actually was just the fins sticking out of the ocean. And oftentimes it might be a stingray that's riding in the surf and the tip of it comes out. And uh, it, it gets some people moving. It's pretty interesting to do that. You know, you need to do smart things. I like to surf and, or, or fish in the surf. Don't put bait in your pockets. I mean, that that sounds simple, but people do it. I mean, I'm like, look, I'll walk out of the surf, get new bait, and walk back into the surf before I'll keep bait in my pockets where a smaller shark will go right through your pocket and try to rip that open because uh, it's your leg or your thigh that's getting ripped open. Hmm. What we're really talking about, though, Dr. Huber, is fear and how unreasoning yes. it is, aren't we? Yes, and we don't act rationally when we're fearful period. Fear can be a good thing, though, can it? Because it keeps us alive. Oh, it does. It does, you know, and we have that fight-or-flight mechanism, and that fight-or-flight mechanism, we all understand what happens. It increases our heart rate, so we have extra blood and oxygen running to our bodies, and it helps us fight or run away from things. But what we forget, and until just a few years ago, we really only hypothesized now we've watched it with MRIs we've watched what happens to the blood flow in our brain during the fight-or-flight process and it goes it redirects blood flow from your your neocortex the part that is designed to think rationally and to process and to, to weigh odds and it redirects that blood flow to the older part of your brain in fact it's called the limbic system and that's where all our emotions are. So the blood flow gets redirected to the emotions and the emotions become more powerful and take over. So it's one of the reasons why SWAT teams and, and, and special ops, they drill and practice as if somebody got shot and what to do and how to get them out of that live fire situation. 
because if we start thinking about it, we we lose that rational ability to think. But if we've drilled and practiced on things, our body just takes over. You don't have to think about it, and you survive the fire, right? Well, that's what happens when we think about going hiking and we see a bear crossing our pathway, or we go swimming, and even though the Coast Guard helicopter up above sees all these sharks swimming down below us, we don't see them. And all of a sudden, you know, we see a fin, and, boy, we are now walking on top of the water trying to get out of there, which that flutter, the splash, actually sends out the low-frequency sonic waves of a fish in distress, and that stimulates the shark to come and eat. Now, I like to surf fish, and I'm out in the surf one day, and all of a sudden the fish quit biting, and I look over to my side, and about 20 yards away, I see this big old black fin break the surface. And I was lucky. It was a huge, probably 12 or 14-foot uh, black dolphin. But uh, <laughs> I was not eager to stay in the water. But the minute I saw that fin, my brain just started going to that fight-or-flight mechanism and not thinking clearly. But then how would you explain these people who I'm going to say are nut jobs, and maybe that's just my prejudice, who get in those cages, go underwater, photograph sharks, and the shark tries to bite through the metal bars. <laughs> well, is the shark really trying to bite them? We know that sharks pick up on electromagnetic fields, and the metal in the salt water uh, acts kind of like, especially if it's an alloy, it will act like um, a battery and send off an electromagnetic field when the shark gets up close, and they may actually be biting at the cage because of the uh, that, that weak electromagnetic field is, is pulsing at them. So they may not actually be trying to bite the divers, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, when you put on shoes and you work at a construction site, you should put on steel-toed shoes, and that's, that's the mentality, I think. You're going to go swim with the sharks, you might as well put on those steel toes, and that would be the cages. Now, some of those cages, when you look at the size of some of these great white sharks that have come through, I don't think uh, are much match for that huge mouth and all the muscles and strength behind it. And you're listening to WIP, 94 WIP Conversation. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning is Dr. John Huber from Mainstream Mental Health. He's becoming our resident expert on all things mental health-wise. And this morning, we're talking about sharks. And Dr. Huber, stay with me. Got to run a few messages, and we'll be right back. The WIP time, 645. And we're back here on Conversation into the Home Stretch with Dr. John Huber, Mainstream Mental Health, our resident expert on all things mental health. My name's Peter Solomon. You know, Dr. Huber, flashing back, I have two kids. They're now grown. But I sat through many hours of cartoons, and I remember a kid's cartoon, Jabberjaws, where Jabberjaws <laughs> was a nice shark who was everybody's friend. We need more of that, don't we? Yes, we do, and and more of that with other animals that we think are so frightful, you know, and for example, bears. I mentioned that, you know, if you don't get between a bear and their cub, most most bears will walk away. In fact, they don't like to be interacting with human beings. So, you know, 
some places they want you to wear bells or, or speak really loudly while you're walking and not be silent through the trails to alert the animals in front of you that, hey, this is not a, a, a mountain goat walking towards them. It's a human being, and they fight, and they're noisy, and they're loud, and they taste bad. So let's keep moving. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, sharks need a good PR person. <laughs> that is true, but the argument might mean that, you know, they do have a good PR team. Look at how many people stop what they're doing and watch sharks during quote unquote shark week. And I tell everybody that this is the best week of the year to, to go shark or to go swimming. Cause all the sharks are on television. They're doing interviews. So. <laughs> yep. But at the same time, it goes back to, Human nature, we like to be scared, don't we? I mean, I'm thinking of all those people who are getting on a plane, heading down to Florida or California to a certain amusement park to see the shark from Jaws come out of the water at that tour boat full of tourists, even though it's a mechanical shark. People still jump. They still jump. They love to be frightened. We get an adrenaline rush. It makes us feel good. The people we're with, especially the ones we know, we tend to bond with them whenever we have a traumatic event and we overcome and survive it. So it, it brings couples together and keeps them together. Uh, and they don't have to face a real trauma, a real traumatic event. And uh, the, the adrenaline we get off of it and that dopamine rush and the euphoria we feel pays off in dividends and uh you know it's a controlled safe fearful way to be frightened that's why we like horror movies uh we don't necessarily like to be scared uh you know when we're out hiking on a trail somewhere and here comes a, a mountain lion or something like that that's not something we enjoy for the most part mm. our mind really can play tr tricks on us and be our best friend or our worst enemy, can it? Oh, yes. And it, the more we learn about it, the more I'm amazed by it every single day. Amen to that. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. John Huber, our resident expert on all things mental health from Mainstream Mental Health. It's always a delight when he got, joins us. And I want to thank him for getting up early to be with us here this morning on Conversation. Thank you, Dr. Huber. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate it. You'll be back again soon, I promise. My Thank you. My pleasure. My name's Peter Solomon, and you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. We'll be back after these messages. And you've been listening to Conversation here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. It's going to be warm out there. It's going to be humid out there. But it's going to be a nice, cool day in terms of the cool conversation here on 94WIP. I want to know how I'm doing. Do you like what you hear on Conversation? Do you have some suggestions for topics or people I should speak to? If you do, email me, please. My email, peter.solomon, S-O-L-O-M-O-N, at hotmail.com. Peter.solomon at hotmail.com. Tell me if you like it. Tell me if you don't. I want to know. I want to be responsive to the needs and the interests of the people out there. So let me know what you're thinking. Stay tuned for WIP Sunday.
if you can't, let me say thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to Ann Todman Solomon, my associate producer. Couldn't do the show without you. Nothing left to say, but stay tuned for WIPA Sunday. See you soon. Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP as we ease on into WIP Sunday. It promises to be sunny, hot, humid WIP Sunday going up to about 86. But no matter where you go, make sure you go with something cool to drink, maybe some good air conditioning and good conversation here on 94 WIP. The world is in strange shape. For every good thing we hear, there's some bad stuff hiding around the corner. Where are we going as a society, as a planet? Um, With this heat, with forest fires, with hail the size of nickels in France, climate change, political change, human change. What does it all mean? Well, that's part of what we're going to ask my next guest. I'm pleased to welcome here author and cross-disciplinary thinker Jeremy Lent. His new book, A Cultural History of Man's of Humanity's Search for Meaning. Good morning, Jeremy Lent. Good morning, Peter. It's a pleasure to be on the show with you. Thank you. Jeremy, the world's a mess. What does your book tell us about it? (laughs) Well, it tells us that while we got to this kind of crazy place that we're in um, through some aspects of what we are as human beings, it's also a, a lot to do with the cultural values that have become kind of central to our modern civilization. And the, the, the good news about that is that while we can't change who we are as human beings, we certainly can change some of the underlying direction of our values. And that's um, w- what really the book kind of invites us to think about. And how do you do that? Well, I think the first way to do that is to recognize that the thing, um, kind of the worldview we hold, the things that we just kind of hold to be true without even having given it any thought since we were maybe just little children growing up, and to really take a look at those and to try to understand what are some of the implicit assumptions we make about the world and about humanity that other cultures through history have seen in different ways. And uh, even um, new scientific insights show a, a different from what um, many of us uh, think is we just take for granted. An example might help at this point. Yeah, sure. Well, one example is, you know, we all go around being told that basically humans are selfish, uh, are fundamentally selfish and competitive by nature. And so, in fact, it's because of that that our sort of global capitalist economy is the only one that really works because it just kind of takes advantage of that, of the fact that's what humans are. But, you know, it's actually only been the last few hundred years that that idea even became um, a sort of prevalent in thought, in European and American thought. And other cultures around the world, through history, have seen humans to be very different. And what's so interesting is that like a lot of modern findings in evolutionary biology and anthropology and um, show that actually humans are not just as much co- cooperative as competitive, but really our defining characteristics, what differentiates us from other chimpanzees or other primates, is in fact our ability to cooperate and, and work together. And how do we know that, though? You talk about anthropology? 
Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, a lot of anthropologists have kind of studied um, one thing they, they, they've done is look at how hunter-gatherer communities act. And of course, nowadays, there are almost vanishingly few of those around the world. But over the last sort of 100 or so years, since there have been anthropologists, you know, actually wanting to study um, uh, other cultures, there were quite a number. And there's a really good literature of how hunter-gatherers actually work together. And the reason that's important is because humans spent 90, 95% or more of our history as nomadic hunter-gatherers. And so whatever it is that makes humans humans, you can kind of find that um, by looking at how they act together. So that's one approach. And another approach that some really um, interesting work has been done is looking at how like human infants, you know, maybe two, three years old, how they act with each other and also um, comparisons of how they act compared to say chimpanzees in the first year or two of their life. So you can really begin to see what's what's kind of unique about humans that way. Well, I've attended lectures where we hear about little kids getting into cooperative play, and that's part of their natural development. But somehow it gets lost, doesn't it? And we move from cooperative to play to he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> it, 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 it certainly does. And, you know, I think the interesting thing with is think about human nature is that it's not that we're only cooperative or it's not that we're only competitive. In fact, we're a combination of both. And what's interesting is that the competitive element is kind of more what relates us to those, uh, those other primates, um, orangutans, chimpanzees, etc. It's like there's this um, notion of the alpha male who needs to learn to dominate because he's got to get access to all the sexy ones and all the other males just kind of look on with... Uh, kind of with envy until they can be the next alpha male, and that's a lot of how other primates are, and that's and that got inherited by humans. But so this new um, sort of tendency to cooperate more has actually been on an evolutionary basis, um, like m much newer. We developed that was we had to live in more complex um, environments and stuff. So we've kind of got this balance between the two. And what's important though is that as humans, we're very very adaptive to our environment. So if we live in an environment that actually encourages competitive behavior, then well, lo and behold, we'll become more competitive. If we live in, in an environment that encourages more cooperative behavior, that's what we'll emphasize. So we're very, very much sort of model ourselves based on the cultural norms we see around us. And that happens as, you know, when you're as little as two or three years old. Hmm. Why'd you write the book? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because the book subtitle is called The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And what actually led me to write the book was I was really kind of doing my own search for meaning. Uh, it was about 10 years ago or so that I started this whole sort of research project that led to this book. At that time, I'd been actually a successful entrepreneur. I'd started an internet company and taken it public. Um, and so I was leading a very different life than I am now. And my um, wife at the time, she passed away some years back, and she was getting sick. I left the company to look after her. The company collapsed. I kind of lost her. Um, uh, and I went through a real um, kind of a crisis, if you will, in my life and determined that whatever I was going to do next was going to be really meaningful. But what was that? I wanted to make sure that whatever path I chose 
wasn't just what somebody told me was meaningful, but something that truly was. And I started to kind of um, look at the ideas that we're given and sort of say, well, where did those come from? And started peeling the onion. And before I, I knew it, I was, I was really like trying to sort of put this jigsaw puzzle together of where these different ideas come from around the world and realized that nobody had written a book like this. It would have been so helpful. So I decided at some point, well, let me you know, keep working this research project and write a book to show anyone who, who else is interested where the different ideas all the way back from hunter-gatherers actually came from, from different cultures and different uh, ways of thinking, all the way to the present day. It's been said that our society here in America has become meaner and ruder and sometimes nasty. What do you think about that? Oh, I think that is just absolutely unequivocally true as far as, I, as, as, far as just we see. When, when, when you have a leader uh, of a nation setting a tonality, then um, much of the country will kind of take that as, as like, okay, and, um, you know, act in ways that, um, especially if that leader is um, sort of breaking precedence the way our current leader is. And, of course, you know, a lot of that nastiness and separation um, was, was coming way before our current um, person who's sitting in the White House. And, and I, I, I think, honestly, um, a lot of... Um, you know, sort of extremist ideology, particularly on the right uh, side of this country, is responsible for emphasizing separateness between people rather than our connect connectiveness. And, you know, as humans, we want to feel connected. I mean, that's one of the findings I discovered. And um, people want to feel in community. They want to feel a shared set of values with others around them. There's a basic compassion humans have. And that's um, has been de-emphasized by what we see in the media, and instead, sort of fear, hate, prejudice has been emphasized. Well, fear, hate, and prejudice may be emphasized, but I hear a lot of media types also saying, but we need to think about something different. We just can't figure out how to get there. Yeah, you know, I, I honestly think that um, a lot of our mass media is responsible for... Um, maintaining a lot of the, uh, of the sort of sense of separation and fear people have through the choice of headlines, essentially choosing um, what you put on the sort of top of the news or top of the kind of news shows, the stuff that will sell, um, sell the most papers or, you know, get the most viewers. And that tends to be the sensational stuff. Um, and it kind of leads to this kind of celebrity culture we have, which then drives people in the mainstream uh, of our country to go, well, yeah, I, I'll do anything so I can just get, um, you know, get a little bit of celebrity, get a little bit of publicity, because that's what, uh, those are the values that are sort of inculcated, uh, along with making a ton of money and um, consuming a lot. And I, and I think that, quite, quite honestly, you know, I think our mass media, um, which ultimately, you know, exists to make as much money as possible from advertising, uh, is partly responsible for maintaining that in our country. Well, there's that old saying in the news business, if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. You got it. But has there ever been another time in history where society has been so mean? We're another country. <laughs> well, that that is a is a good question, and yeah, I I think there has been a lot of times when, oftentimes when uh, things 
feel like they're changing a lot, when people feel like they're um, losing a lot, and uh, when and there's this sense of sort of putting up the barriers because of um, you know, having to kind of having to de defend yourself, if you will. And I think that you know what we've seen. I mean, certainly the values, the overall values of our, if we think of our like global society right now, rather than the, just the kind of um, thinking of what's going on politically in the, in the U.S., what we do actually see is that the baseline of a sense of how we treat each other is far more um, emp empathic and compassionate than the baseline um, in earlier parts of history. And a, a lot of people will point to that and, sh and show that there's a sign that there is a kind of moral progress. If you take the big picture, um, actual moral progress going on in human history. And, and I, I agree with that. And it may well be that we're going through a period of just an un unusual um, backlash, if you will, against some of this moral progress. That you know, the people who feel that they're losing out and the changes that are taking place um, you know, feel they've got to make a stand. Um, and it, it, it's possible that this time might just be seen as this kind of interesting uh, sort of punctuation in a, in a progress in the other direction. But I think it's also possible um, because of the ways in which we're losing so many of the sort of um, fundamental sort of elements of framework of our democracy in this country, it, it's possible that there may be no going back. I don't think any of us can really know right now. Well, people like to know what the rules are. And with things changing so rapidly, what are the rules? We, we don't know anymore. And that's confusing and anxiety-producing. It's true. It's true. And so a lot of the time, you know, people will look to others for what those rules are. And one of the things that I'm hoping to invite in my, in my book is to really take this really much, much broader picture and to look at what other cultures have, uh, did, have sort of felt are the rules and to realize that we don't really actually have to live according to the rules that we take for granted in our society right now. And maybe most importantly, each of us as individuals has the ability to actually make our own rules up in terms of the sort of core ways in which we respond to people based on our own sense of compassion, our own sense of shared humanity. So, you know, if you see something happening that uh, doesn't feel good to you, we do have this choice of, you know, of, of intervening and saying, actually, you know, this is what I stand for. It's a time, if you will, to look at what our true values are inside ourselves and to stand up for what we feel is right. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Jeremy Lind. His new book, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. Now, Jeremy, stay with me. I've got to run a few commercials, but we'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 716. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My guest this morning, Jeremy Lind. His new book. Pattering, patter, pattering, yeah. I'm having trouble with this one, Jeremy. Pattering. I'll be happy to help you. How about the patterning instinct? A Thank cultural you. history of humanity's search for meaning. Thank you. For some reason, the, to the tongue's not working. Um, all right. But we don't seem to learn from our history and from other cultures. 
I mean, I can go for something as basic as the death penalty. Some cultures in the past, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, said Hanmurabi, um, off with their head with French Revolution um, to today's movement where there's a real struggle between should we or shouldn't we have capital punishment? Why do we have trouble learning about some <clears throat> things? Yeah. You know, that that's a great question. And I, I think that what happens is that you get entrenched um, entrenched sort of uh, groups within a society that essentially don't want to lose the powers that they might have had in the past. And so they'll do anything to try to um, kind of shift people's ways of thinking to keep themselves in power. And we have seen that through history. Um, but the, the, hopeful, the hopeful thing we see when we really take a look at the big, big horizon of, of history over time is that in spite of those um, what you might call like reactionary sort of pressures, things do change. I mean, um, it was only – I mean, believe it or not, if we're thinking about something like the death penalty – you know, it was only a few hundred years ago that was considered to be the absolute norm. In fact, more than the, than the norm, you know, there's this famous English person from the 17th century called Samuel Pepys who wrote a diary. It's, it's like it became really famous it's because he sort of wrote about the day-by-day -day stuff that was going on. And he was this sort of well-to-do genteel gentleman. And he would actually talk about how he'd take this um, Sunday stroll through the park in London and – you know, one of the amusements for the kids to see would be somebody being hanged, drawn, and quartered. I mean, it's like unbelievable to think that this could be the case. But that, that, was, that was not just the norm, but it was considered an okay entertainment. So there has been some real change over, um, yeah, over the generations. But honestly, I think that change has come about in large part just because of the people in the vanguard of each generation looking at what the norms are and saying, that's not acceptable. We've got to make things better. And so, you know, against this kind of inertia of people saying, no, that's what I'm used to, that's what I, you know, you, you get a few brave people and people who really care and, start and, and live according to their feelings of what's right can actually, um, you know, make a difference. I mean, and like uh, an example of a difference that we can see happening just in the last few years is um, something like the acceptance of same-sex marriage. There's... Um, Friends that that I have who who are um, same sex uh, who are now married who didn't believe that in their lifetimes they would ever uh, be able to be legally married and now um, you know it's it's pretty much it's widely accepted among all but you know the most re, you know, reactionary groups within our society right now and that came out of the blue. But don't go to the bakery to ask them to make a wedding cake. <laughs> right. Exactly. There are still some people who are not so crazy about it, uh, as we're only too well aware. But I think that what you've got to look at is where the preponderance of energy um, is leaning. And, um, you know, and that's not to say um, I don't want to sort of come across as a Pollyanna thinking about these things, because honestly, we're, we're also facing such 
um, such grave, grave crises, like the, the environmental crisis we're facing is, is terrifying. And, it, you know, the risk of massive um, climate breakdown over, um, that we're beginning to experience right now, but that is just only going to get much, much worse. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing even the countries of the world that are working together to try to do something about it, um, you know, with the U.S. being this kind of sad exception, are not doing nearly enough. And these are the kind of crises that really actually threaten any kind of progress, any kind of moral progress or even um, progress in standards of living that we've had as a world in the past few centuries. The first part of your title, the patterning instinct, what's that mean? What's that about? Yeah, well, you know, what I discovered as I, as I sort of looked at what it is that makes humans develop culture in the first place is that we have an instinct to pattern meaning into the cosmos. And that's what makes humans uh, in a qualitatively different from any other mammal uh, that we know of on the planet in terms of how they think. Because... Um, when we look at things, we, we instantly need to sort of put it into some kind of pattern and structure. So, like, imagine a, just a little infant that's born. Nobody teaches her, says to her, you're meant to learn language. So, you know, start figuring it out. She just basically hears all this stuff around her, associates it with touches she feels and stuff, and she begins to pattern all that um, chaos into, a, into the language that she learns to speak. And similarly, as, as we grow older, we pattern the stuff we see around us into our culture, a sense of what the rules are. And when, when early humans, hundreds of thousands of years ago, sort of began to develop language and looked at the stars and the, and the world around them, they felt this drive to pattern some sense of meaning into it. And that's where the first myths and religions emerged. Then there's the roles of men and women in what's acceptable in terms of their interaction with each other. I'm thinking of the Me Too right. movement. What used to be fairly run-of-the-mill, I mean, you saw something you liked, if you were a man, you grabbed it, to today where... You better watch out. I mean, I'm thinking of um, the growing list of people who have been appropriate with their hands and more. Is that another example? Right. Is that another example of what you're talking about? That is. That is actually, I think, a perfect example. And uh, you know, I'm I'm a big supporter of the Me Too movement, and I think that uh, really, for the first time in I mean, if, if you look at the history of the patriarchy, of the ways in which basically men have dominated a society over women, it goes back all the way to the first, um, the beginning of agriculture about 12,000 years ago. If you look further back at hunter-gatherers and how humans lived together for most of our history, and there, there was very little like that. And men and women, you know, shared, um, shared their work, shared responsibilities, and very little distinction between the sexes in terms of power. Um, but with the rise of agriculture, you also see the rise of, um, uh, of, of the, the patriarchy, the way it became embedded in cultures around history. And women basically just have always had a raw deal from, from that. And I think that it's, uh, it's so exciting to see that they are now having the opportunity to actually feel that they can be and feel, feel safer at work, you know, feel that they have the ability to 
be seen for you know who they are rather than you know for their um, for for their sort of sexual uh, gender or whatever. So that's an example, though, of the kind of way in which that is it's a frightening step for many men who are used to a certain way of. Um, life and a certain um, uh, way of behaving, and suddenly they have to like change in sort of midstream what they're doing, and they can get in trouble for doing something that they always thought was okay. And so, it, you know, it's it's a, one of those moments that I think w uh, when we look back 20, 30 years from now, and um, people will have different norms about what's acceptable than now, and they'll look at that Me Too movement as one of those moments of shift. But for these men. Should they be held accountable by today's standards for something that they may have done 10, 20, 25 years ago? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough ethical call. And I do believe that there is room for, you know, understanding that, you know, people act in ways that uh, they, you know, they, they felt was right. And at the same time, you know, the, and, the women who got, uh, you know, totally mistreated by those men, well, they had to suffer those consequences for those 20 or 30 years. So it's not like these are um, sort of actions that people took in many cases without a victim, where, you know, just somebody has to go back and look at what, at what they did. There was, um, you know, somebody was, uh, in, in many cases, somebody's lives were torn apart, their emotional lives were absolutely devastated by something that happened that was that was wrong and and you know even though um, the the norms might be shifting right now and were different some years back and the actual there's an underlying ethic of you know human respect that hasn't changed in all of these years well I guess maybe to put it another way the men may have changed and God bless them if they have but victimization especially victimization of a woman goes on forever, doesn't it? It does. It, it, it really does. And, and, you know, I think, honestly, with all of the turbulence that goes around with this, with the Me Too movement, it's really, the interesting thing is, in the end, um, it can actually free up men to um, act in uh, ways that feel more comfortable to them. If they don't go around feeling that the norm is that they're meant to, you know, make that path and they're meant to have some sort of sexual uh, conquest under their belt in order to get respected, it might take a lot of pressure off men. Um, and then it, it's one of these changes that I, I think could end up uh, really becoming a win-win once people sort of get comfortable living with, uh, you know, with new norms, norms that respect people's, um, each, each people's dignity and right to be who they are. Well, I remember on The Bachelor, there was one bachelor who's admitted he was a virgin at 25, and the rest of the bachelors and the bachelorette went, oh, I don't believe it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, certainly I, I remember grow, growing up in my adolescence, you know, there was this, this terrible pressure to try to sort of, you know, be more successful um, if you will, then you know the um, the other the, the other guys around and 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 wow, if I could if I could go back to that adolescence and uh, grow up without feeling that pressure, I'd certainly have been a lot happier. I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. 
and you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. Need to do one more break, Jeremy. So we'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 7.33. And we're back and into the home stretch with Jeremy Lend, author of the new book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. Jeremy, and if I can say so, Peter, you said that beautifully. Thank you. (laughs) Tongue's working again. It's always a comfort when that happens. Um, There's still so many things that confuse me. One is I'm thinking of race relations in this country. You know, things seem to be going well, then they're not going well. Um, If you're African-American, brown or whatever, if you're non-white, you get afraid to walk down the street, and if you see a policeman, you think, "Uh uh-oh. That's kind of scary and upsetting to me. Absolutely. People's fear of law enforcement. I mean, is there any historical aspect to that that we should think about? Yes, I I think that, and I I really think that it's the most important thing that we can all be aware of is the historical underpinnings of the current things that we're looking at right now. And, you know, people don't like to talk about it much because it's uh, it's a awful, hideous history that we have to take a look at. But the reality is that this country was built on slavery you know and for and uh, for hundred for you know over a hundred years and like this core business with these slave ships like actually you know just packing people in so and you know big percentages of them just died on the journey and turning uh, turning people into this slave economy and even after slavery was finally abolished of course with Jim Crow and you got pretty much a similar kind of situation and in terms of this massive, massive disparity of wealth and power and every single aspect of society. Um, and so, you know, I actually uh, was born and raised in England. And when I came to the States, I was, I was kind of astonished, really, by the ways in which these uh, racial um, disparities so ingrained in society. I mean, while England itself is hardly, you know, free of racial tension and was really just as responsible as the United States originally for the slave trade. So, I mean, I'm not saying that England by any means gets a free pass on this, but it's an amazing thing for somebody coming out of this country to just look at this deeply ingrained um, prejudice and just incredible inequality that's there. And I think we have to look at those historical underpinnings and the fact that um, we still continue with these um, built-in prejudicial aspects to our society um, in every in every aspect. Um, so, you know, laws get passed to make mortgages more available. Laws get out, um, passed to stop redlining or all these things. But, you know, ultimately, some of these things have to be and inculcated in the culture, people have to really feel for themselves this is not right for, um, you know, for things to become, basically for life to become more bearable for the African-American uh, portion of our population. Yeah. For many people, though, I don't think it's so much the color of your skin, but rather your economic class. I mean, if you've got the money and you move next door to me, that's nice because you've got the money and that means you're a certain kind of person. But if you're poor, 
And if you know, and happen to be a minority, you're not the kind of person I want next door. Well, except a lot of studies have shown that people really do um, <clears throat> make distinctions on, like, on skin color, and especially it's to do with things like um, neighborhoods. You know, it's very, very difficult for, um, you know, as an if if you have a black American family that begins to do well and they want to move out of the poorer neighborhood and into uh, a more affluent one that happens to be more white, that they, they can get just get rejected by the, um, the, the whole sort of uh, immune system, if you will, of the community. And so it, it does get to be very, very hard to kind of shift the, those barriers. Um, and yeah, I think that um, one thing that people just need to be aware of is um, you know it's something that many white people um, don't even like to talk about about race at all, and they like to sort of you know cover things over. Say, oh, everything's okay now. You know, we passed the Civil Rights Act a generation ago, and you know what are they complaining about? And um, it's hard to come to terms with, but there have been lots of studies done showing that um, most people, the vast majority of people, have what's known as implicit prejudice. So even if your sort of conscious mind says, no, I'm not prejudiced, I recognize that all people um, are, um, should be treated equally, there are in, there's these implicit ways in which um, we unconsciously react to people that we don't see as part of our kind of in-group um, that causes those, um, those kind of feelings to happen and prejudicial um, ideas to develop. So it takes extra work uh, and it's it's doable, but it takes a, an, a real sort of commitment to understanding ourselves to actually look at those that first moment of a kind of a prejudicial response to something and say, oh, okay, I felt that, but you know that was just my implicit prejudice, and I can overcome that. I can actually recognize that that I don't have to act in that way, and and that's really the first step towards I think sort of freeing up. Um, our own kind of anxiety to re realize that if we have those implicit pre prejudices from childhood, you don't have to pretend they're not there, but you do have to act um, in accordance with a, a greater understanding. Now, it's my understanding, Jeremy Lynn, Lynn, that you're in town today for a conference. Tell me about that. Yes, yes, that's right, because actually I live in Berkeley, California. Um, and I'm here in Philly um, as part of. Uh, this wonderful conference um, put on by the International Big History Association. And they're a, a group of um, kind of, of academics and educators um, worldwide, all around the world, that are trying to um, kind of get people to look at history in a new way, in a big way. So instead of like, say, looking at, you know, American history or looking at the history of the 19th century or sort of stuff like that, they look at history as being this gigantic unfolding story all the way from the Big Bang, you know, uh, 10, whatever, 12 billion years ago, whatever it was, um, or to when life first emerged on Earth, like uh, about 3 billion years ago, and then recognizing basically when you look at this big span, you sort of see that humans themselves we're like, we, we take up uh, just one tiny, tiny, tiny portion of the, of the history of the Earth and the history of the universe. And, and you know, and our, our ideas we have in our modern civilization are just the tiniest little kind of um, sheen on top of all of that. And having that perspective 
really helps you sometimes to look at things from uh, from a kind of a deeper and sort of more thought out point of view. Really puts things in perspective. Will you be speaking at the conference? Yeah, I, I spoke just just yesterday on the um, on the themes of this book, the patterning instinct that we're talking about today. It, it was a it was a great conversation actually. And what was the response? Yeah, well, one of the things that we talked about a fair amount is in my book, I look at the ways in which our Western way of thinking uh, emerged about 2,500 years ago from the ancient Greeks and how in East Asia, like in Chinese culture um, and other parts of East Asia, a different way of thinking about the universe emerged that saw us beings more interconnected and more in a, like this kind of connected web of life rather than a lot of the underlying um, sort of splits we have in Western thought. So there was this really great discussion. You know, so some people were asking, well, is this really true? Because there's examples in each different culture of people, you know, acting ways that are not part of that mainstream, uh, the mainstream part of the culture. So we had, we had a, a, just a super conversation. And, and, and in general, I think people got the sense that, yes, it is true that, um, say, East Asian cultures um, acted in different ways, but there's no. It's, it's wrong to look at some sort of golden age as if like, oh, we got to go back to some place or time, and that things were better then. What we really need to do is take the best ideas, the best values that come from different times, different places around the world, and forge them together for a new kind of synthesis of, um, you know, of values, ways of thinking about the life that could lead us to a sustainable and flourishing future for humanity, all the way into the long term. Are you hopeful? You know, I I feel that we, in a way, the way to think about hope is not so much to do with optimism and pessimism, because there are so many forces that are so destructive that we are looking at. It's easy to get pessimist <clears throat> to, to get pessimistic about it, but to me, hope is more of a as the frame of mind. It's, it's almost we can think of it as a verb. It's something that what what gives me that that sense of hope is realizing that what each of us does as individuals we're not separate from what's going on around us we're actually part of it so if enough of us look at what's happening and we say we're not happy about it and we're going to work together to make things look better then there's anything that we humans can do <clears throat> so even though things may be looking like they're moving in the wrong direction that doesn't mean at all that we that that has to be the case. We really have an opportunity to change things if we care enough and if we act on what we care about together. But at the same time, Jeremy, I remember something that was on the wall of my seventh grade, and that was a lot of years ago, science room. And it was a quote from Dr. Schweitzer, man has lost the capacity for, to foresee and forestall. He will end by destroying the earth. And we're well on the way. We are we are well on the way to destroying the earth, and it's something that, you know, actually I sort of um, uh, half of me finds myself in despair a lot of the times as I look at the terrible things that we're doing. Uh, the what's called the sixth great extinction of species is taking place, and the rate of deforestation and so much else, and even beyond climate change. So, and there's no question that a lot of the damage is being done already and is going to continue to be done. And what, what I do find 
and some sense of possibility, though, is that we humans can turn things around. We need to look at the underlying um, things that are driving us on this path of destruction. And I think that that's what we don't talk about enough. You know, we, for example, very few people are aware that if you look at, the, say, like the top 100 economies in the world right now, 69 of those 100 are major transnational corporations. And those corporations are, you know, are created with the, the underlying value to basically just increase shareholder value no matter what. So their whole job is to really like sort of, you know, and just exploit the earth and to sort of monetize human activity and to turn everything into this gigantic sort of growth machine. And as long as we're living in that kind of society, I do think we are headed for a real, um, real risk of destruction. And so that's where I think what we need to do is have these kind of conversations and start to become aware of some of the underlying values and the underlying roles of our society that are driving us to this precipice. And is that what you want people to get from the book? That is exactly what I want people to get from the book, to sort of read it to get this really bigger picture of where we came from as human beings, the fact that different cultures actually <clears throat> could live their lives according to different sets of values, <clears throat> and that the values we have in our society, they're, they're not all bad at all. There's a lot of wonderful values, and, and there's been great progress that the last few hundred years our, our sort of Western way of thinking has brought us to, but it's created these incredible imbalances, unbelievable inequalities of wealth, and, and, and we're really heading towards an environmental catastrophe, and that we can do something about it by looking at modern findings, in science and uh, like learning uh, different ways of making sense of the world by looking at what other cultures can do and really trusting in our own sense of what we are as human beings and caring, uh, compassionate creatures for each other, that together we can actually turn things around. Now, the book is rather large, so I have to ask the question, do we need a PhD to get hmm. through it? Oh, absolutely not. Um, in fact, you know, it's written for any, anyone who just has an inquiring mind and wants to just really think, find out a little bit more about our world and about our history as human beings. And it's written in a conversational tone. So, um, you know, people have come up to me, <clears throat> like, um, all the time say, well, I was a bit intimidated by the book when I first took a look at it, but it was like an adventure story. I really enjoyed, you know, every single part, you know. And so it, it, it's a fun experience. And I'd like to say thank you to Jeremy Lend, his new book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. This book is a place to start. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure talking with it's you. It's been my pleasure as well. And you've been listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hale, always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinion, Sonny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to Ann Tideman-Solomon, my associate producer and dear wife. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. And there's nothing left to say, but see you soon.